welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Gabriel said, Seventy sets of seven time periods have been assigned for your people and your holy city. From the time the command is given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed prince comes, Jerusalem will be restored and rebuilt with a city square and a moat during the troubles of those times. But after the sixty-two sets of seven time periods, the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. Daniel, chapter 9, verses 21 through 26, God's Word Translation. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to another episode of Anchored by Truth. Today we're continuing our look at the intertestamental period, that 400-plus year period between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. I'm in the studio today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., today we're going into our seventh episode in this series. We want to talk at some length about why we have called this series on the intertestamental period perfectly quiet. But before we get to that, how about doing a brief refresher on why we're so interested in helping listeners understand more about the Sadducees and the Pharisees? Well, greetings to all the Anchored by Truth listeners. We want you to know that here at Anchored by Truth, we really appreciate you taking some time to be with us on each and every episode. We know that you come and listen to these broadcasts and podcasts because you have a genuine desire to understand Scripture more thoroughly. We also know that it might seem a little odd to focus as much attention as we've been doing recently on a time period in history when no new books of the Bible were being added to the canon of Scripture. But the truth is that having some familiarity with the intertestamental period is essential to a thorough understanding of both the Old and the New Testaments. And part of that understanding that we come to by examining the intertestamental period is understanding how the Sadducees and the Pharisees developed into the very influential parties that they became and why they became so instrumental in how the story of Christ and his arrival on this earth would unfold in the four Gospels. You know, neither the Sadducees nor the Pharisees were mentioned at all in the Old Testament. Yet, during the Gospels, which of course are the four books of the Bible that record the life of Jesus' earthly ministry, by the time of Jesus' arrival on this earth, both the Sadducees and the Pharisees had become very significant. As a matter of fact, they had become so significant in Jewish culture of the time of Jesus that the Sadducees and the Pharisees were actually two parties that comprised the Jewish ruling council that was called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, at the time of Jesus, was the council within the nation that made laws for the nation, but it's also the one that held trials and conducted courts. And that's probably how we know the Sanhedrin the best from our Bibles, is because the Sanhedrin was the court, if you will, before which Jesus was tried. But of course, the trial itself was illegal according to Jewish law, and the trial did not conform to Jewish law. 
so it's probably not fair to really call it a trial. But whatever label you want to put on it, the Sanhedrin was the group that held it. And the Sanhedrin was comprised of Sadducees and Pharisees, who were two of the most important religious and political bodies of the day. Many scholars believe that at the time of Jesus' trial, there were more Sadducees on the Sanhedrin, and many scholars believe that the high priest at the time was a Sadducee. Right. And if you just think about that alone, it's actually fairly mysterious, because the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. So at the time of Jesus, you actually had a high priest of the Jewish temple who actually did not believe in the resurrection. So that's one of the things that it's important to understand about the differences between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, but the Pharisees did. And the Sadducees seem to have been comfortable with the continued Greek influence, or Hellenization, but the Pharisees weren't. The Pharisees were committed to retaining or returning to the traditional Jewish ways of life and religious practices. So this would partially explain why the Sadducees were so threatened by Jesus. Jesus was the promised Messiah who had been predicted to come. Jesus was the very embodiment of the Jews' hopes and aspirations. Yes. Studying the intertestamental period gives us insight into the background of the New Testament. But studying the intertestamental period also helps give us a much clearer understanding of key portions of the Old Testament. And today we want to talk about another very important implication of the intertestamental period. Which is what? The length of the intertestamental period. You know, we've spent a lot of time during our series talking about what went on during the intertestamental period, such as the changes in the empires that control Palestine. So, just to set the stage, in our Bibles, the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi which most scholars believe was written sometime between 430 B.C. and 458 B.C. The Persian Empire was in control of Palestine at that time and remained in control until around 332 B.C. when Alexander the Great entered Jerusalem, having conquered the Persians. Alexander died in 323 B.C., and about 20 years later his empire was split among four of his generals, including Ptolemy and Seleucus. A successor of Ptolemy or Seleucus controlled Palestine until 142 BC when the Jews regained their independence. The Romans took control of Palestine in 63 BC when the Roman general Pompey conquered Jerusalem. Right. So we've talked a lot about the changes in empires during the intertestamental period, and we've talked about which foreign power controlled Palestine, and we've talked at some length about the impact that those changes had on Palestine, on the nation of Israel. And one of, of course, the biggest impacts that we've talked about was the active spread of the Greek language and culture in the territories that they controlled. Even though the Romans were in control politically and militarily, Greek influences were present everywhere throughout the Roman Empire. The Greek language was so pervasive, Roman youth were taught it. In fact, one of the most famous Roman statesmen and philosophers, Cicero, said, quote, The Greek language is spoken in almost all nations. The Latin is confined to our comparatively narrow borders, unquote. And one of the most famous of the Roman historians, Tacitus, lamented that, quote, An infant born now is committed to a Greek nurse, unquote. So despite the fact that the Roman Empire had displaced the Greek Empire, The Greek influence continued to be felt both in and out of Palestine. Correct. 
But of course, let's remember, the Greek language was being used to communicate in a Roman empire, and the Romans controlled trade, commerce, politics, travel. Just about every other aspect of daily life was under Roman control in one way or another. Now, one of the upsides of Roman control was that the Romans ensured that their roads and seaways were safe to travel on. So it was relatively easy, comparatively speaking, to move around the Roman Empire. So during our series, we've talked about the changes in empires and how those changes affected Palestine. But up to this point, we really haven't talked very much about why the intertestamental period lasted as long as it did. Which was a period of over 400 years. You know, that does seem to be a very long time during which God did not make any new revelations. And to our contemporary minds, which are so used to instant responses from phones and computers, 400 to 450 years, well, that's practically an eternity. But of course, hundreds of years are of no consequence to an eternal God. Which the Apostle Peter made plain in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, where he wrote, quote, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Exactly. During the intertestamental period, God was being quiet insofar as special revelations were concerned, but God was never inactive. During the intertestamental period, God's prophetic and redemptive time clocks were both continuing to tick away. So let's make sure we have our time frames firmly established, because today's discussion is all about time, and establishing the beginning and the ending points of the prophecy that Daniel recorded, the one that we heard in our opening scripture, is absolutely crucial. So first of all, let's note that Daniel received his vision, the one that we heard about, around 539 B.C. And at the time Daniel received the prophecy that we heard about, Daniel himself had been in captivity for close to 70 years. In all probability, Daniel was part of the first group of Jews to be deported when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem around 605 B.C. Ultimately, though, after continued rebellions, the Babylonians did completely destroy the city. Then the remaining population, except for a very few of the poorest people, either went into exile or were scattered. At the time Daniel received the vision, he recorded in chapter 9, Jerusalem had been a heap of rubble for decades. So when the angel Gabriel told Daniel that Jerusalem was to be rebuilt, it would have been as astonishing as it was welcome. In the ancient world, conquerors don't go around rebuilding cities and nations they had destroyed. But, of course, Jerusalem had a special role to play in God's plan of redemption, so God was going to make sure that Jerusalem did get rebuilt. You know, it didn't matter how the pagan empires might ordinarily behave. Kings and empires are going to do whatever God tells them to do. So, when the Medo-Persian Confederation conquered Babylon, the Persian emperor at that time, Cyrus, gave the first of four decrees that ultimately would result in Jerusalem's complete restoration. Cyrus's initial decree was given around 538 BC, and that decree allowed the Jews to return to their homeland, but that decree was primarily concerned with the rebuilding of the temple. Cyrus's first decree did not really say anything about rebuilding the city. 
Well, over the next not quite 100 years, three more decrees were given by Persian emperors concerning Jerusalem. Well, the final of those four decrees came in 444 BC, and it came from the Persian emperor Artaxerxes. How can we be sure which of those four decrees started the prophetic time clock ticking and exactly what time period we are concerned with? Well, to answer your question, we're going to rely heavily on chapter 6 of Dr. Harold Honer's book, Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. Now, I would highly recommend for anyone who is a serious student of Scripture that they get a copy of that book, because that book really gives you absolutely crucial information about the central figure of our faith, Jesus Christ. So, let's take the second part of your question first. Commentators are pretty much universally agreed that when the angel Gabriel, who delivered that prophecy to Daniel, referred to 70 sets of time periods, he was referring to 77-year periods. Now, some translations of that portion of Scripture refer to 70 weeks, but for a variety of reasons, which Dr. Honer covers very thoroughly in his book, Most commentators agree that the prophecy concerns a total period of 490 years, or 77-year time periods. But the 490-year time period was not one continuous period of 490 years. The total period is broken into three smaller periods. A 49-year period, 7 times 7, a 434-year period, 62 times 7, and a one final seven-year period for a total of 70 seven-year periods. And it was to be after the end of the first two of the periods that the Anointed One, or Messiah, will be cut off. Before that happens, two of the three prophesied periods will have elapsed. The 49-year period and the 434-year period will have ended. That's a total of 483 years. In other words, 483 years were prophesied to elapse between the decree issued to restore and rebuild Jerusalem and the cutting off of the Messiah. So, to evaluate the prophecy's accuracy, we need to know which of those four Persian decrees started the 483-year time clock ticking. Right. So, as Dr. Honer discusses in his book, only one of those decrees, the last of the four, really meets the criteria given in Daniel chapter 9. Now, this was the decree which is discussed in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. So, the first three decrees of the four either had to do with the rebuilding of the temple, or they were simply a ratification of the original decree when some local opposition arose to rebuilding the temple. The city square that is mentioned in that prophecy implies a broad, open place that is protected within the city, and the moat that is mentioned would be a supplement to the defensive fortification that a wall provides. So, according to Dr. Honer's calculations, Artaxerxes issued his decree based on our calendar on either March 4th or March 5th of 444 B.C. So that takes care of the start of the time clock and how long the clock would run, right? Well, not quite. Remember that the ancient Jews did not use the Gregorian calendar, which is the one that we use. The Gregorian and the Julian calendars both use a 365-day period of time because that's the length of time it takes for the Earth to travel around the Sun. The ancient Jews did not use a 365-day year. 
the ancient Jews just used a 360-day year because they divided their year into 12 even periods of 30 days. Now, of course, we know today that the solar cycle is not actually just 365 days. It's actually a little bit longer. So every four years, we have what we call a leap year. But the key point we need to understand is that the 483 years that we're talking about were only been 360 days, not the current 365 plus a little bit days that we use in our calendar. In other words, the ancient Jews year was 360 days long, not 365 days like ours today. So to make our calculation correctly, we have to convert the years to days. So... 483 years times the 360 days the ancient Jews used for their calendar comes out to be 173,880 days. So according to the prophecy, 173,880 days would lapse between issuing the decree to restore Jerusalem and the Messiah being, quote, cut off. Are we just about ready to check Daniel's accuracy? Just about. One more detail. Now, we know today that our solar year is actually just slightly longer than 365 and a quarter days. The solar year is actually 365 days, 5 hours, 48 minutes, and 45.975 seconds. And 45.975 seconds. Yeah, (laughs) don't want to forget those. No, you don't, because God didn't. If we did not make an adjustment for those extra hours and seconds, when you translate the Hebrew calendar into the Gregorian calendar, you actually would be off on the time period by three days. But the bottom line is that when you add those 173,880 days to March 5th of 444 B.C., and then you translate that result into our Gregorian calendar, you come out to March 30th, of 33 AD. That's the day that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem that we call Palm Sunday. And that's the day that we read about so much when we're reading about the scriptures, especially around Easter time. Palm Sunday occurred just before Jesus's crucifixion. So naturally, being crucified is a pretty dramatic way of being, as the scripture said, cut off and having nothing. Actually, a great many New Testament commentators agree that it was on Palm Sunday when Jesus' role as the Messiah, the Anointed One, became the most visible during his pre-resurrection lifetime. On Palm Sunday, Jesus visibly fulfilled a number of Old Testament prophecies, including Zechariah 9.9, which prophesied that Jesus would come to his people riding on the foal of a donkey. This is starting to be another one of those moments that, when you think about it very much, it gives you a headache. So, let's review for just a second. Sometime around 539 BC, the angel Gabriel visited Daniel, who was still in exile and far outside his homeland. Gabriel told Daniel that at some point in the future, a decree would be issued that would allow the Jews to rebuild their city, including the walls that would permit it to have a safe city square and interior. Gabriel told Daniel that 483 of their years later, after the issuance of that decree, the Jewish Messiah would appear to the people only to be cut off and have nothing. And we now know from history 
that all that unfolded exactly as Gabriel told Daniel that it would. Almost a hundred years after Gabriel visited Daniel, the Persian emperor Artaxerxes issued a decree that is recorded in Nehemiah chapter 2 and for which secular history provides confirmation. Then, another 173,880 days later, which is 476 or so of our years, the prophecy was fulfilled on the exact day that was foretold. And this prophetic fulfillment accounts for the fact that the solar year actually contains not only 365 days we typically think about, but also an additional 5 hours, 48 minutes, and 45.975 seconds. That's not amazing. That's mind-boggling in the most literal meaning of the term. And that's God. God is mind-boggling, literally. So this explains why the intertestamental period lasted as long as it did. Chronologically speaking, the book of Nehemiah, which contains the information that we need to start the date of the prophetic time clock ticking, is very likely the last book of the Old Testament. It is certainly one of the last three. But with the completion of the book of Nehemiah, the world had all the information it needed to recognize Jesus as the Messiah when he came. We even have from the Old Testament an exact time schedule. So, what you're saying is that God paused in his special revelation once he had given the world all the information it would need to know the Messiah when he came. So just as God did with the seven days of creation, God completed his work and then rested. That's kind of an amazing thought. God treats time the way we treat distance. God measured out 173,880 days along the plane of history for a specific part of his plan of redemption. Then, God sent Gabriel to Daniel to tell Daniel about what he was planning. About a hundred years later, God put the plan into motion. And 173,880 days after that, God completed his plan to reveal his Messiah at a specific point in Earth's history. Only an all-knowing, all-powerful God can do that. Yes, but there's one more thought I want to cover that is almost even more amazing than the prophetic precision we've been talking about. Not sure we can take much more. What we've already learned is a lot. You've already given us enough to meditate about for days. Well, I think one more aspect of this prophecy needs to be emphasized. Clearly, only an omniscient and omnipotent God could give such an exact prophecy to one of his people and then orchestrate the events to bring it about. Daniel's world did not even know that the earth revolved around the sun, much less know the exact length of its orbital period. But God did, and so do we. That means that we can see the amazing accuracy of God's activity within history that even Daniel couldn't. For that matter, from our vantage point within redemptive history, we have evidence of God's existence, power, and faithfulness that even Jesus' disciples didn't possess. Oh, I think I see where you're going with this. Sometimes Christians in our era will say to themselves how much stronger their faith would be if they only had seen Jesus turn the water into wine or feed 5,000 people with only a few loaves and fish. But in an oddly ironic way, we have evidence to support our faith that even the people who lived alongside Daniel, or Jesus, didn't possess. Precisely. 
You know, the Bible has become so commonplace in our society that sometimes we miss the amazing attributes it possesses. Jesus' audience had access to the Old Testament, so they could verify his claims about being the Messiah from the prophecies contained in it. But on Palm Sunday, the day Jesus actually entered Jerusalem as the foretold Messiah, there probably wasn't anyone in the crowd, including his own disciples, who had the same degree of information that we have about the amazing display of prophetic perfection that was occurring right before their eyes. But we have that information, and if we will just take the time to get to know the Bible and do a little bit of investigation about the astounding evidence that the Bible contains, then we can be fully, 100% confident that the Bible is the very Word of God. It's just really the oddest thought possible that we may actually have better evidence about Jesus as the Messiah as even his own disciples possessed. I see what you're saying. Even if you had been standing next to Jesus and saw the water being poured into the barrel and then saw the lid being lifted and the wine drawn out, that would have been a single experience. It would have been a powerful experience, to be sure. But over time, memories fade. Many of the witnesses to Jesus' miracles might have had only that one single experience with him. With the passage of time, even the power of their experience might start to dim. But we have the Bible with us all the time, and we can go to it daily or even multiple times a day. And every time we do, we can have our faith reinforced not only by the comforting passages, like the fact that God will never leave us or forsake us, but by the fact that the Bible displays in every book the fact that God has given us evidence and reason to support and sustain our belief in Him. Sounds like a great time for a prayer. Today's prayer is a prayer of adoration for the Holy Spirit. A prayer of adoration of the Holy Spirit. Great and mighty God, you are the searcher of men's hearts and the only true joy for their souls. We worship gladly the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, You rule and reign with the Father and the Son. When the Son completed His work and ascended to the Father, You came to be our comforter, instructor, and advocate. You came to take away our spiritual blindness and to make us alive to things of God. At Pentecost, You affirmed Your presence in the world and established Your dominion in the hearts of those who belong to the Son. Praise be to the one who tells us the truth about Jesus and who strengthens us against the forces of powers of wickedness that attack us in our humanity. Left to ourselves, we could never stand against the wiles of the evil one. But in you, we have victory, for greater are you than Satan who is in the world. You are worthy of exaltation and adoration, for you are fully God and Lord. You regenerate our hearts and bring light to our minds. Since you fully possess all knowledge and wisdom, you are the supreme teacher who not only imparts wisdom, but also gives us the capacity to absorb and understand that which you teach. Lord, we pray that we would be sensitive to your leading, and we praise you for being the faithful minister to our souls. Time and time again, You have gone before us to find the path that we should travel. 
You have never left us, even in those times we have grieved you or resisted your work. Finite man cannot fully comprehend the wondrous relationship that is shared by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We know that the three persons of the Holy Trinity are perfect in unity, holiness, and beauty. We marvel at the grace manifested to us by the Father's sending, the Son's coming, and the Spirit's abiding. Surely such love deserves the response of full dedication to the one who first loved us, and we pray that such commitment might mark our lives. We lift our voices in songs of adoration and with the angels cry, Holy, holy, holy is our God and worthy to be praised. We bow before the light of our lives, the Lord of the universe, the Lamb of God. In Christ's precious name, we pray and give thanks. Amen. We'd like to remind our audience that a lot of our radio episodes are linked together in series of topics. All of these episodes are available on your favorite podcast app. To find them, just search on Anchored by Truth by Crystal Sea Books. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, Try out crystalseabooks.com where we're not famous, but our boss is.